0: Constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free.
1: Once again we welcome you to the Constitution classroom with your host Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we are uh, right on the uh, eve of Thanksgiving. And that sounds like a really great topic that uh, maybe we could cover today to get a better understanding of what's behind the holiday. Where where would you like to begin this discussion? Let's look at the Thanksgiving
0: Constitution. What I mean by that is the Mayflower Compact, the Pilgrim behind it, and how their views influenced how we understand our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution and our American form of government as well as our American way of life, however different that is from it was for the pilgrims and the purists. So So, where where does that story
1: begin? Well,
0: it really has to begin back in England. And I'm going to quote a couple of very interesting statements here. Dr. E.W. Smith, for example, when he says that If the average American were asked, who was the founder of America? The true author of our great republic, he might be puzzled to answer. You know, we think about that a minute. He might answer George Washington or James Madison or Thomas Jefferson. But Dr. Smith says, we can imagine his puzzlement. As hearing the answer given to this question by the famous German historian Ranke, one of the most profound scholars of modern times, says Ranke, John Calvin was the virtual father of America. Doctor Smith interprets that further, but he says these revolutionary principles of republican liberty and self-government, taught and embodied in the system of Calvin, were brought to America, and in this new land where they have borne so mighty a harvest, were planted by whose hands? The hands of the Calvinists. The vital relation between Calvin and Calvinism, to the founding of the free institutions of America, however strange in some errors the statement of Ranke may have sounded, is recognized and affirmed by historians of all lands and creeds. For example, Bancroft, who is usually regarded as the leading American historian of the 19th century, simply called Calvin the father of America. And he went on to add, even though Bancroft was probably Unitarian and not a Calvinist himself, he added, he who will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows but little of the origin of American liberty. One of the greatest of all Reformation scholars, Dauvin Yead, wrote concerning Calvin, Calvin was the founder of the greatest of republics. The pilgrims who left their country in the reign of James I and landing on the barren soil of New England, founded populous and mighty colonies, were his sons, his direct and legitimate sons, and that American nation, which we have seen growing so rapidly, both as its father, the humble reformer on the shore of Lake Lehman, meaning Switzerland. And then we can go to one more here. Emilio Castellar, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Madrid and At one point, the president of the Republic of Spain, and this Roman Catholic scholar acknowledged in 1873, it was necessary for the Republican movement that there should come a morality more austere than Luther's, the morality of Calvin, and a church more democratic than the German, the Church of Geneva, the Anglo-Saxon democracy, its lineage book of a primitive society, the Bible. It is the product of a severe theology learned by the few Christian fugitives in the gloomy cities of Holland and Switzerland where the morose shade of Calvin still wanders, and it remains serenely in its grandeur, forming the most dignified, most moral, and most enlightening portion of the human race. And again, this is not coming from a Calvinist. This is coming from a Roman Catholic scholar from Spain, Dr. Lorraine Boydner, in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, says concerning Americans at the time of the American War for Independence, that of approximately 3 million Americans at the time, he says 900,000 were of Scotch or Scotch-Irish origin, 600,000 were Puritan English, 400,000 were German or Dutch Reformed. In addition to this, the Episcopalians had a Calvinistic confession in their 39 articles and many French Huguenots had also come to this Western world. Thus, we see that about two-thirds of the colonial population had been trained in the school of Calvin. And we looked at the pilgrims themselves, and pilgrims and Puritans were definitely Calvinistic in their theology. There was a little difference between the Puritans and the pilgrims. Both of them were staunchly Calvinist, both of them thought that the Church of England at that time, a church that wasn't too far removed from the days of King Henry VIII, that the church at that time had become quite apostate, quite lax and quite immoral. And so the Puritans were called Puritans because they wanted to purify the Church of England. Their goal was to stay in the church,
2: rid it of its
0: heresies, its laxness, its immorality, In other words, the Puritans' complaint about the Church of England was not that it was too dictatorial or too strict. Their complaint was not strict enough, and they wanted to purify it. And some of them came to America for the purpose of building up strength in the American Northeast, because they thought they'd eventually be able to go back to England and eventually take control of the Church of England, while other Puritans stayed in England. Now, somewhat different from the Puritans were the pilgrims. And the pilgrims in England, they were called dissenters or separatists. They were not called pilgrims because, well, they hadn't pilgrimed yet. And anyway, they shared the Calvinist, the Puritan theology. They shared the Puritan diagnosis that the Church of England was corrupt and lax and heretical. But their solution was different. They said, don't bother trying to purify the Church of England, that's a lost cause. Rather, we need to separate from it. And for that reason, they faced persecution in England in ways that the Puritans did not. They left to go to the Netherlands, lived in Leiden of the Netherlands for a while. There, they found that their beliefs were tolerated, but the their children were adopting foreign ways. In some cases, they felt immoral ways. And so they determined they couldn't make the Netherlands their permanent home. So they returned to England with the intent that instead they were going to come to America. And so they sailed to America. And, of course, we know it was a difficult voyage. They had two ships. One of them, the Speedwell, was taking on water. So... They had to return to England and leave the speed well behind. They determined it was not sufficiently repairable to withstand a transoceanic voyage. And so, as many as possible, stuffed themselves together on that Mayflower for a lengthy voyage where they faced storms and many other difficulties, all cramped together, a lot of smell and a lot of other problems on the voyage, a lot of sickness as well. But... Before they arrived, they determined that we need to consider what form of government we are going to have in America, because they had come under the authority of the Virginia colony. They were going to land in northern Virginia and be governed by the Virginia colony, or the Virginia colony had a lot of Puritans in it, but mostly it was not really a Puritan company. It was a company that was out there to make money, although they did want to evangelize the natives here in this country. But they contracted with this group of pilgrims that they would come and set up a colony in the northern parts of Virginia, and that the Virginia Company would profit from this colony. Well, they were blown off course way to the north. And at this time, I have to add that we didn't have clear colonial boundaries. It wasn't quite clear where Virginia had its northern border, but by the time they got up to what we now know as Massachusetts, they were pretty sure this isn't Virginia anymore. But this was providential, because it meant that these pilgrims were no longer under the direct authority of the Virginia Company, and therefore they were free to draft their own articles of government. And so before they came ashore, they drafted those Articles of Governance. We know them as the Mayflower Compact, which some say is the first constitution that was ever a written constitution for the United States of America. And we'll talk about that Mayflower Compact after we take our break.
1: Sounds good. I'm excited to uh, to learn a little bit more about what they learned through that uh, Mayflower Compact as well as uh, some of the tough lessons that uh, that accompanied their uh, landing here in the new world. You are listening to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, and we will be back just the other side of these messages.
3: The number one gift in this stressful year, relaxation from Homedics.
0: Soothing stress for over 35 years, Homedics is the top home massage products brand
3: with gifts for every aching muscle on your list with free shipping on orders over $50. Holiday supplies won't last, so avoid the rush while you can at
0: H-O-M-E-D-I-C-S dot com. Get the perfectly relaxing, perfectly
3: affordable gift now at Homedics.com and major retailers everywhere.
4: We all have health goals, but let's face it, you are living in some fantasy world if you think you are suddenly about to start eating better. In fact, have you thought of this? How many different servings of fruit have you eaten today? How many servings of vegetables? And sorry dad, French fries and ketchup don't count. The experts recommend eating over 10 servings of fruits and vegetables each day. That's where balance of nature comes in. With three fruit and three veggie capsules, Balance of Nature gives you all your daily recommended servings and contains 31 different fruits and vegetables. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Change your life now by calling 800 2468 That's 800 Or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code USA.
2: Do you think some of the top investors in the world are buying gold? Recently, a handful of billionaires have been accumulating gold over other forms of investments. When the world's financial moguls like Sam Zell begin choosing metals, perhaps it's time you listen and follow suit with your own personal investments. Gold is formally recognized as a hedge against currency depreciation and inflation. Take David Einhorn as one example. Einhorn founded Greenlight Capital in 1996 and surged that fund from $900,000 to as high as $11 billion. Einhorn believes, that the central bank's recent stimulus efforts will have an effect on pushing up the value of gold. He keeps 10% of his firm's value stored in gold bullion. If you're interested in knowing more about gold, platinum, and palladium, call Noble Gold for a no-pressure consultation. They have the most experienced representatives and an exclusive pipeline to metal sources. Visit them at noblegoldinvestments.com. That's noblegoldinvestments.com. Investments.com.
1: Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are examining the story of Thanksgiving, and Colonel, I appreciate uh, you filling in some of the gaps. Uh, this is this is the uh, fleshed-out details about uh, why the Pilgrims came here, why the Puritans came here, and uh, let's uh, let's pick up uh, with the with the Mayflower Compact. All right, and
0: before we draft, we talk about the drafting of the Mayflower Compact. Maybe we should just think of a couple of principles. The Puritan and Pilgrim political theory—they were virtually identical. You might possibly say there is one difference: that the Pilgrims, having been the victims of persecution in England, when they came to America, they may have been just a little bit kinder and gentler than the Puritans. Now, not in the sense that they wanted absolute separation of church and state in a libertarian or libertine society, very much the opposite. And while they came here to find religious freedom, they understood religious freedom to be in the sense that they wanted to be free to worship God as they believe the Bible commands that God be worshipped. They weren't really interested in granting that freedom to anybody else. And you understand their perspective. They had come all the way across the ocean to establish this holy commonwealth, as they call it, the community of the redeemed under the rulership of the elect, as they put it. And if you wanted to be part of that, fine. If you didn't, if you came over here with running a whole different lifestyle and philosophy and philosophy of government, well, their view is you have perfect freedom, perfect freedom to leave New England and not come back. Go to Scotland, go anywhere, go down to Georgia, go to Virginia. Just don't come here. We came all the way over here to establish this holy commonwealth, and that's the way we want it. Now, by 1700, about 80 years after the pilgrims had landed, distinctions between the pilgrims and the Puritans were pretty well eradicated, and by that time, the pilgrims had been pretty much absorbed into Puritan society, and as I say, they were not that different to begin with. One of their concerns was government power. They believed very strongly in the simple nature of man, total depravity, as Calvinists would put it. And that being the case, they wanted to make sure that governments did not have too much power. They knew we couldn't live in anarchy. Human nature wouldn't allow that. But they knew also that you couldn't give rulers absolute power because if you did, they would abuse it. The Puritan preacher John Cotton put it like this, Let all the world learn to give mortal men no greater power than they are content they shall use. For use it they will, and unless they be better taught of God, they will use it ever and anon. For whatever transcendent power is given will certainly overrun those that give it and those that receive it. There is a strain in a man's heart that will sometime or another run to excess, unless the Lord restrain it but it is not good to venture. It is necessary, therefore, that all power that is on earth be limited, church power or other. And as Richard Bushman has put it, Puritans were not content to let abject submission totally define their relationship to authority. We kind of think about Puritans that way, that total control, total submission, Very much the opposite. Liberty of conscience is a Puritan idea. As Bushman goes on to say, even more than persons living in a permissive atmosphere, they felt the need to raise defenses against the fathers who constantly threatened judgment and rebuke. The inward impulse was expressed in Puritan political philosophy as the doctrine of rights and the rule of law. Even conservatives of that time asserted that God has not subjected the lives and liberties of the rules to the arbitrary will and pleasure of people. The spirit of opposition to English and colonial authority, when subjects thought their rights were violated, was the defense of, self, of the self. Property rights, for example, represented more than physical comfort or prestige, for property was an extension of the person. Hence, the legal safeguards against government invasion of these rights protected the individual as well. And he goes on to say, in the 17th century, the occasions for justifiable resistance to colonial authority in Connecticut were few, but the sensitive concern for lawful liberty showed up every day in the courts. Connecticut men were extraordinarily quick to drag their neighbors to law at the least offense and to battle ferociously for justice. And trespass by a fellow subject was resented because the neighbor seemed to be exercising authority falsely, angered by the slightest hint of oppression. Puritans jealously defended their rights against attacks from any sorts. Thus, his awe, the rulers did not reduce the Puritan to slave or servitude, for the general respect for power led to stress on the limits of government. The law both restrained and strengthened the individual and in his testy relations with authority. So we come then to the Mayflower Compact. And before they go ashore, since they are no longer under the area that is under the jurisdiction of the Virginia Company, they draft their own covenant of Governments, And that is referred to as the Mayflower Compact. And a couple of things that stand out in the Mayflower Compact are that we are under the authority of God. And like those who wrote the Declaration, those who wrote the Constitution, they had a high view of God and his law. The contract begin, in the name of God, Amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France and Ireland, King Defender of the Faith, having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our King and country, a voyage to plant this first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents soundly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another, Covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic, for our better ordering and preservation, and furtherance to the ends aforesaid, and by ye virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and officers, from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, under which we promise all due submission and obedience. And under that they find their names once again under God. But the first thing you see here is that they know they are under the authority of God. They do this in the name of God. They say they have come here for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and everything they are doing they are doing in the presence of God. Now the second thing you see here is a covenant concept of government. The idea of Government is not something that is forced upon us from above. Government, rather, is something that God has delegated to the people. And as John Winthrop of the Puritan colony said, the Lord hath given us leave to draft our own articles of government. We under God's laws, but the way we apply them, we have to apply them to the circumstances here. And so, governance is by a covenant of the people, and now an issue arises. Does government come from the people? Or does it come from God? How can it be both? And there are some, especially in the extreme Calvinist camp, who would say that if we're saying government of the people, we're being humanists, we're not following the word of God. Well, I would say that the motto of my home state, South Dakota, a motto drafted by a pastor, by the way, I think summarizes it very well. Under God, the people rule. Think about those words. Under God, the people rule god gives authority to the people to establish government and then the people establish government and delegate power to their rulers so it comes to all power comes from the people but the people get their power from god and that is a key concept of the mayflower compact Still another is the idea of just and equal laws they are drafting such just and equal laws that's a biblical concept once again Laws must be equally applied to the rich and the poor, the foreigner and the native. And just an equal law is what the Mayflower Compact is all about, the Declaration is all about, and the Constitution is all about.
1: We are back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about Thanksgiving, and this is a side of Thanksgiving that I'm guessing a lot of folks won't be familiar with, but it will certainly enlarge your understanding. And Colonel, you were uh, you were talking about how they went about crafting their government after arriving in the New World, and particularly about how how they sought to uh, to find equal justice under the law.
0: Equal justice, and again, as Joshua Berman has said in his book, Created Equal, he is a professor at Tel Aviv in Israel, he says that if there was one idea that the ancient world thought was self-evident, it was that all men are not created equal. They believed in classes, hierarchies, and so on. But the Bible presents the idea of equality. And we go on 150 years after the Mayflower to the Declaration of Independence, and there we see Jefferson saying in the Declaration that we are entitled to our independence by this higher authority, the laws of nature and of nature's God, as he puts it. Further, that we have the self evident truth that all men are created equal, not evolved equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, not endowed by their government with certain negotiable privileges, because if rights come from the government, the government can take them away, that to secure these rights, not to grab them, but to secure these rights, governments are instituted among them, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That same concept is a compact, a covenant, that we saw in the Mayflower Compact, here we see it again in the Declaration of Independence. And then we fast forward from there, 11 years to the Constitutional Convention. And at the convention, we begin with those words, we the people of the United States, and go on to state their purposes, and then say to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We the people. Once again, this concept of covenant, but still the authority comes from God. They close the Constitution and the ratification clause, this done by... Unanimous consent of the state present in this year of our Lord, 1787. That is, they're acknowledging there not just God, but the birth of Jesus Christ as the central event of human history. So the seeds that the pilgrims planted there with the Mayflower Compact and their experiments back in 1620 and thereafter, their fruits, years later, in the Constitution and Declaration of Independence. Now, of course, they had had a very arduous voyage coming to America. When they landed, they, having been going off course, they came late in the year, and as a result, it was too late to plant a crop, and really too late to build good, solid houses and so on. As a result of all of this, they faced a very, very severe winter after already having been weakened by a very difficult voyage. And in that first winter, over half of the pilgrims who came had died. Died of disease, some of starvation, malnutrition, exposure to the elements, other causes like this. And they were concerned about the native population who outnumbered them greatly, of course, but very concerned about whether relations with ever would be friendly or hostile, they turned out, in general, to be much more friendly than those of Jamestown had experienced, or that some of those like the Spaniards and others had experienced. <laughs> but, nevertheless, in that first winter, with so many dying, they were concerned that the Indians might see how depleted their colony had become. And so, they didn't bury the bodies of those who died. And if you go to Plymouth today, you will see a large, I guess you call it a sarcophagus. There on the hill overlooking the Plymouth Harbor and overlooking the Mayflower, you'll see a large sarcophagus that contains the bones of not all, but many of those pilgrims who died that first winter. And their names are recorded on the outside of that sarcophagus. Anyway, that demonstrates something of the extreme hardships that they faced that first winter. Now, God put them through the hardship of the persecution in England, the experience in Holland, where they learned a little more of what they truly needed, and the arduous voyage across the ocean, and then the terrible privations of that first winter. Sometimes God puts us through these things or allows us to go through these things because he wants to strengthen us by it. It's kind of like in the military, your first sergeant tells you, drop down and give me 30. Not 30 bucks, but 30 push-ups. And that's not fun, but it makes you stronger. Hardship make us stronger. And hardship left the pilgrims much stronger than they would have been otherwise. And so after that first winter, there are about 50 of them left, and... Now, several things happened during this time. One of the things is that they come to realize that the system that they had been given before, the Virginia colony had said that when you come to America, you're to have your possessions in common, share commonly, and all work the same common fields together, and then we'll share the profits between the colony and the Virginia company and so on. But communism just doesn't work. It doesn't give people an incentive to produce. And you could have, for example, the commissar come out to the commune and give the workers a rousing oration on the need to work to build the socialist mother country, and that might fire them up for half of an afternoon. But to get people to produce in the long run, you need the profit motive that free enterprise supplies. And so Bradford, who for years had been the governor of the Plymouth Colony, wrote in his History of Plymouth Plantation, so they began to consider how to raise more corn and obtain a better crop than they had done, so that they might not continue to endure the misery of once. At length, after much debate, the governor, with the advice of the chief among them, allowed each man to plant corn for his own household and to trust themselves for them, all other things to go on in the general way as before. So every family was assigned a parcel of land according to the proportion to their number, with that in view, for the present purposes only, and making no division for inheritance, all boys and children being included under some family. This was very successful. It made all hands very industrious, so that much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could have devised, and saved him a great deal of trouble and gave far better satisfaction. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn. While before, they would allege weakness and inability, and to have compelled them would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. The failure of this experiment of communal service, which was tried for several years, and by good and honest men proved the emptiness of the theory of Plato and other ancients. Interesting that Bradford is familiar with Plato and the other ancients. Applauded by some of later times that by taking away a private property and the possession of it in community by a commonwealth would make a state happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For in this instance, a community of property, so far as it went, was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment, which would have been to the general benefit and comfort. And so Bradford says, we tried a communal experiment It failed miserably as 300, 400 years later, we can say communism has failed everywhere it's been tried. So they went over to a free enterprise system. And with free enterprise, people had an incentive to work, an incentive to produce, an incentive to plant, an incentive to take care of their crops and so on. And from that point on, the colony was not wealthy, but much, much more prosperous. And anyway, so now the colony, is on a much firmer footing, even though we are still weak in number. We still have only about 50 people. And anyway, so as we come to our break, we're going to talk a little bit about what happens after this first season of good planting and the first season of a good, free enterprise-related harvest. What happens then? And what's going to happen then is going to be the first
1: thanksgiving. Colonel. Um, I love that you. I love that you use the term free enterprise because the whole time you're describing how their experiment had gone when collectivism was the norm versus when uh, they they were allowed to engage in, in free enterprise. To me, that's that's exactly what you were making the case for. Um, it's you know it, it wasn't uh, the the communal agreements that that saved them. It was uh, when they were set free. To, to use their own efforts and to, to excel in their own ways that uh, they then had enough to eat. And so I'm very happy to hear that because uh, it seems like the, the the free market and free enterprise is uh, somewhat on the outs today in, in a lot of people's minds. We'll take a very quick break. This is Constitution Classroom. We encourage you to check out the uh, archives, which you can find at lovingliberty.net. Very easy to find all of the back uh, episodes in which uh, the colonel walks us through the Bill of Rights and various parts of the Constitution. Today we're talking about Thanksgiving, and we'll be back after these messages.
3: You
0: know what stinks? Overpaying for things, and that includes your cell phone bill. That's why every day people are switching to Pure Talk USA. You get the exact same coverage as the larger carriers, but at half the cost, with no contract and no excessive fees. Get unlimited talk, text, and two gigs of data all for just $20 a month. The average person saves $400 a year. Go to puretalkusa.com, enter the promo code Off, and you'll save 50% off your first month. That's puretalkusa.com, promo code Off. Pure Talk USA. Simply smarter wireless.
2: You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years. Folks, it's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a MyPillow. You can do it too. 60-day money-back guarantee, 10-year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one or call 1-800-951-8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now.
4: Balance of Nature's fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA.
1: Once again, welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmoe from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, you have been making a powerful case for uh, the majesty of the free market and free enterprise and how it literally saved those uh, those uh, pilgrims upon their arrival in the New World.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about how free enterprise seems to be and. In- low regard today. And it's amazing. There are some surveys, especially among younger people, where they're asked, would you prefer a free enterprise or would you prefer a capitalist economy or a socialist economy? And close to a majority almost would say they prefer the socialist economy. Now, a lot of these are people that have not really had the experience to be out there and having to live on a paycheck or having to meet a payroll once they get out of the real world, some of that idealism they fade away. And some of that, I think, is based upon the fact that capitalism has been given a dirty name, but also the fact that they don't really understand what socialism is. Part of it, though, I think, is the fact that if we use a different word, if we, rather than asking, do you favor socialism or capitalism, if instead we would ask, do you favor socialism or free enterprise? I think even using the word free enterprise as against using the word capitalism would produce a somewhat different result. But after they had that first harvest, which was a good harvest, we find after that that they prepare to have a feast of Thanksgiving. And we don't even know precisely what day it was, but it was in the year 1621, the year after they had landed. And we know about this, not from Bradford's History of Plymouth Plantation, which is our main source of information about the colonies and the Mayflower Compact. We know about this letter from another member of the colony, Edward Winslow, who's described as a diplomat, a printer, an author, a trader, politician, and other things as well. But a letter that he wrote back to England in December of 1621. And here's how he describes that first Thanksgiving We mean by this, the first Thanksgiving of the Pilgrim Colony. Now, the Jamestown Colony had had Thanksgiving services before this, and Coronado and the Spanish Explorers had had Thanksgiving services in the 1500s. But here's Winflow's letter. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together, after we had gathered the fruits of our labors, they, born one day, killed as much fowl, with a little healthy side, served the company almost a week, which at which time, among other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming among us, and amongst the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some 90 men, whom for three days was entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on the governor and upon the captain and others, and although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. In other words, he's talking about this feast, and he's saying that at this feast, chief Mosashoites. Now, there's a statue of Mosashoites there in Plymouth, a very noble-looking man, and in fact, they're probably in front of what we now know as the Leiden House there in Plymouth. Shortly after this time, there was a treaty drafted, a treaty of peace between the Pilgrims and Chief Massasoit and his tribe, the Wampanoag, as they were called. A treaty that kept peace among them that lasted for half a century, 50 years at least. And, but anyway, Chief Massasoit came among them, they had the feast together. Some have tried to put the pilgrims in a bad light to say that they intimidated the natives here. Well, let's remember, Massasoit comes with 90 of his braves, 90 of his warriors. We have 50 pilgrims. Many of these are women and children. Some of them are elderly. Some of them are in bad health. So I doubt that the pilgrims were intimidating the Wampanoag at this time. And doesn't seem to be any intimidation on either side. But there is our description of the First Thanksgiving. Now, when we talk about the Mayflower Compact and the importance of learning from it, we have to mention that our main source of information about the Mayflower Compact and about the life of the Pilgrims comes to us from William Bradford. Now, William Bradford was one of the original colonists. Came over on the Mayflower. He served as governor of the Mayflower or of the Plymouth Colony. And this is a small colony, to say about 50 people some of the times, but he served as the governor off and on for about 30 plus years. and he kept a journal, and that journal is known as the History of Plymouth Plantation. And it is from the history of Plymouth Plantation that we know their style of government. We know the Mayflower Compact. We know most of what they did. There are a few other sources too, but our main source is Bradfords History. Now, I think when we look at the miracle by which God preserved these pilgrims, we also need to consider the miracle by which he preserved their history. And there aren't many societies in the world that have a written history of their society going all the way back to the beginning. If you look at Britain, Germany, China, other parts of the world, we can see a history that goes back a long time. But in the earlier days, it dated in myths and and legends but here we have a written history that goes right from the very beginning even in england before they came over and when bradford wrote this history he didn't do it on a computer so he had it in electronic form it wasn't saved in the icloud he didn't even make xerox copies of it rather it was one manuscript now when he died the manuscript passed into the possession of his son. There was a fire in his son's house. The manuscript was one of the very few things saved out of that fire. It passed into Bradford's grandson. And there was a flood in his house. The manuscript was one of the few things saved out of that flood. And then he was placed with a pastor of the Old North Church in Boston, And he kept it in his tower, but during the War for Independence, the British took control of that church, made it into a livery stable, and after the war was over, the manuscript was gone. A few historians had quoted passages from it, and so we have those passages, but it was referred to as the Lost Bradford Manuscript. But then in the mid-1800s, there was an American a scholar who was reading the some of the history of the English ch- churches in New England, reading an English manuscript on this, and he came across some quotes in it from Bradford's history, quotes that we didn't have in America. And this led him to think, well, maybe the manuscript still exists. Maybe a soldier brought it back to England. Well, there was a senator in the late 1800s in Massachusetts, George Hoare was his name, and the senator made it a mission to go back to England and uh, find that lost Bradford manuscript. And anyway, he searched, searched, finally determined that it was in the library of an English archbishop, an Anglican archbishop, of course, and he tried for days to get an appointment with the archbishop. The Archbishop wouldn't see him, and finally, a couple nights before he was ready to return to Massachusetts, he was there at the inn, and the innkeeper said, well, what can I do to lift your spirits, Senator? And he said in a solid way, give me an appointment with the Archbishop. He said, well, the Archbishop is a good friend. He arranged the appointment. The Archbishop agreed to return the manuscript to the United States. It was returned in the year 1897. And it is now in print, and anybody can read it. But the point I'm making out of this is that God would not have preserved that manuscript for us if he didn't intend that we read it, that we study it, that we learn from it, profit from it, and practice it. And so I encourage people, go, for example, to the website of the Plymouth Rock Foundation, and you can find the History of Plymouth Plantation Bradbury Manuscript available at a very reasonable price, but all of this is designed to edify us. And the Bradford says in the history, and this is emblazoned on the forefathers' monument in Plymouth, emblazoned facing to the west as though facing to the entire nation. Thus out of small beginnings, greater things have grown by his hand, who made all things out of nothing, and gives being to all things that are. And as one small candle may light a thousand, Though the light enkindled here has shown to many, yea, in a sense, our whole nation, let the glorious name of Jehovah have all the praise. And at Thanksgiving this year, let the glorious name of Jehovah have all the praise. I'm going to close on one lighter note. We have a friend who lives up in, what does it say, a northern state where they're under restriction. The restriction says that they can have only five people at Thanksgiving dinner and only 12 people for a funeral. So they're having 12 people for Thanksgiving dinner. They're calling it a funeral for the church. Happy Thanksgiving.